Welcome back to the Ecoscope. I'm Flavia and in this week's episode we're going to be looking at something which I'm aware we are probably all very, very tired of hearing about. Brexit. But don't worry, this isn't going to be a conversation about all the usual protocol and trade stuff which I'm sure we're all so bored of hearing about. It's actually going to be about the connection between Brexit and the environment. So last year, just before Christmas, I spoke to Dr. Vivian Gravy, and we actually talked about what Brexit means for the environment, because, and you may not realise this, but trade wasn't the only area of regulation which the EU had a say in in the UK. It also had a say in and oversaw some really important areas like nature conservation, water quality, clean air, and some other environmental protections. So when the UK left the EU, These areas of regulations, like many others that we've heard a lot about, were up for review and some gaps were left. So listen to the interview because Dr. Vivian Gravy can explain this way better than I ever could, what Brexit has actually meant for environmental policy in the UK. She'll talk about what's changed and what might lie ahead, particularly for a country like Northern Ireland, which, as we all know, is yet to implement its own climate legislation. Now to end the episode, and as we're starting 2022, this episode's good news segment is actually going to look at some of my favourite stories from 2021. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out why we should be celebrating 2021. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. With me today, I've got Dr. Vivian Gravy, who's a lecturer at HAP, um, and who's actually been doing a lot of work and researching on post-Brexit policy and governance um, in terms of the environment in the UK. She's also the co-chair of Brexit and the Environment, which is a network of academics, if I'm correct, who analyses how Brexit has been affecting the environment. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. No, it's an absolute pleasure. It's something that I've actually been wanting to cover on the show for quite some time. So really delighted to have you on. Um, And I wonder if we could just start by sort of talking more generally about the research that you've done so far on Brexit and the environment and sort of the main conclusions that you've drawn from it. So I've been working on this topic since 2015. So um, it's been a long, long time of looking at Brexit and the environment, which means I guess I have I've come up to quite a few conclusions in that long time. Um, So I guess the first phase of my work was really ahead of the referendum, really trying to understand the impact that actually being in the European Union has had on the UK environment. Um, Because, of course, I mean, UK environmental policy, like in many ways predated, like the UK was one of the first countries to really develop quite a lot of environmental policy. But at the same time, it had that reputation of being the dirty man of Europe, of having a lot of problems and problems that we are seeing again, right, with like questions around um, sewage going in rivers and going in the sea. These are things that were really big then. 70s are still very big now. So we, we made, we created a group of academics to try to kind of figure out, okay, 
actually across all of these different environmental issues where it had been impact. And so we found then our first conclusion was that overall, and despite some of the bad things that the EU does on the environment, around agriculture, around fisheries, overall being in the EU had had a tremendously positive impact on the UK's environment. Now, as if some of you were you know, voting age during the referendum, you may remember that there was very little discussion of the environment then. It was all about migration, about economics, economic impact, and the kind of a positive take on Europe or just like, you know, sometimes there's a benefit of working together. They didn't really make a cross, like the point was not really made well. Uh, and in many ways, the environment, you know, failed uh, to figure there. Um, so the other thing, like since then, I've been working a lot on okay, so we're living, but let's make sure that by while doing so, we try to hold the UK government especially to account. They've promised that we're going to get a green Brexit. They've promised that we're going to you know, uh, be an environmental leader. Okay, so what is it going to look like in practice? Um, how can we make sure it does happen? Um, and that's especially because, I mean, of course, we're based in Northern Ireland, environment is devolved. So you're going to have a different environmental policy in England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. So all of these questions that we're asking of the UK government, all of this work we're doing, analysing what comes out of London, we also have to do it, what comes out of Stormont, um, Edinburgh, and Cardiff Bay as well. So it's been a exciting moment to really look at environmental policy, because basically over the last five years, uh, everything has been, you know, the ground has kept on shifting and we haven't been able to really be completely sure either who's going to be making the decision or what the key decisions are going to be. And actually yesterday, we finally, we finally got, uh, yesterday or the day before this week, we finally have had the UK Environmental Act, which is the first environmental act in the UK since the 70s. And it is, it's been promised over three years ago so you see yeah so it is, it's been a very long time in coming but we're now starting to finally have a bit of clarity around where the UK is going to be in terms of environmental action some of it is really positive some of it is much more concerning and that's just in London in Northern Ireland we're still at the beginning of the process because today actually we've had the publication of um, an environmental strategy for Northern Ireland so mm. any student who's interested in the environment there is any, you know, there's a consultation on this until the 18th of January. So do go on the website and fill it out and make sure that, you know, young people's voice are heard on the future of the environment. That's a very rambling answer <laughs> to your first question. But basically, it's been everything keeps on moving. We don't know what's going on with the policy content, who's, who's deciding. And that meant that as an academic, as a researcher on this, I've had to, you know, um, just go everywhere and look at lots of different uh, parts of the environment. And we are finally starting to figure things out five years on, six years on. Yeah, I suppose that was probably an ambitious question because a lot has changed pre, yeah. pre-referendum, post-referendum, all the different negotiations and how things have even changed since 2019. So I suppose mm-hmm. that was a really ambitious question. So let's kind of try and break it down. Was the biggest concern post-Brexit then that there would essentially be a policy and governance gap in terms of environmental um, issues. Yeah. So, and that that's that's a really interesting question. And 
a really interesting story, actually, because we, so the idea of a policy gap, for those of you who are not familiar with this, it's just the idea that over 40 plus years of membership of the European Union, there's going to be a lot of laws that have just been agreed at the EU level. And so one of the big questions in the early years of the Brexit process is what's going to happen to all of the body, all of EU law in the UK. Is the UK just going to overnight get rid of all of the law or is going to kind of create a new status for it so that mm. it keeps and carries over? Um, so the, the, the decision in the end was made to carry this over. And so we've got now what's called very sexy name of retained EU law, uh, which actually is slightly different in the four nations in the world matter. It's again a mess. Um, but in many ways, that big regulatory or policy gap was avoided if you look at the headlines if you don't look at the footnotes if you start digging into it that act of copying and pasting across um elo into uk law has been done with kind of a sifting as well and some portions of eu law such as for the environment very important bits such as you know every few years you have to revise that piece of legislation to check that you're still using the best technologies available, that, you know, you, you're checking that this actually delivers um, on the ground. All of this has been removed. Mm. And another thing that has been removed is that actually change is that instead of having an independent body, such as a commission, having to decide whether you get extension on meeting your target, now it's a government that should be implementing the law that is also deciding on whether it gets extension or not. So that kind of power balance like and counterbalance that you had in the law has been changed. But overall, that idea of policy gap, regulatory gap, it's it's not perfect, but it's definitely was much more worrying at first. Mm. Uh, back in 2017, when Andrea Letson was still um, um, Secretary of State for DEFRA, you know, she was talking about, you know, three out of five uh, piece of EU legis- environmental legislation may end up falling through and it's okay. <laughs> We're really not at this stage, right? So there's been a lot of work from NGOs um, and just like general like interested parties to make sure that there's legal certainty in the UK after Brexit, and that matters way beyond the environment. And in general, you know, you want to know what the law of the land is, and you don't want everything to change overnight. The second part part of your question was on governance gap. Now, governance gap is an even more fuzzy concept, perhaps, but is the idea that everything that so being in the EU doesn't just mean having EU law uh, to apply like to comply with. It means that the role for the Commission, role for the Court of Justice in terms of having the expertise to evaluate whether a policy works or not, uh, being able to um, you know go on the ground and check that you know is that member states actually complying with its um, obligation. Okay, is that a river? that's supposed to meet a certain standard of water quality is that actually meeting it in practice and if not then what happens to that state is it possible to then have a fine on that state state to kind of push it uh, to actually do what it's supposed to do and all of these questions again they're not just environmental um the commission the court of justice had these kind of enforcement powers across the whole street of eu law but the only area where it has actually been addressed in terms of creating a new regulator in the UK after Brexit to replace the role of the Commission of the Court of Justice is the environment. 
So we're, we are getting a new office for environmental protection. Um, again, that's just been finally confirmed with the passing of the European, uh, the UK Environmental Act. We're going to, it, it's going to be this weird body, both for England and Northern Ireland, and it's going to try to cover some of the role of the Commission and the Court of Justice. And for me, that's a huge testimony to the really success of the environmental movement in the last five years. You know, they didn't get hurt during the referendum at all, but they got together and managed to really make a strong claim, like strong, strong claim that we needed a new regulator um, and no other sector has been able to get that new regulator. So we are really like the environment is potentially, you know, what we had, we were the first perhaps to identify these governance gaps, but we're also the only one where that governance gap has actually even, if not perfectly, been filled and addressed. Okay, so that's okay. So that's really interesting. So enforcement gap, which potentially would have been there, has now been addressed. But yeah, I mean, so, it's it's in it's yeah. on the way. But I suppose my second question is, and you can correct me if I've got this wrong, but environmental policy and legislation is is devolved, right? So it, it's yeah. not decided centrally from Westminster. So each of the devolved nations can kind of decide yeah. what they want to do in broad terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so would this independent Asian agency sort of oversee each of the devolved nations? So uh, um, so the Office for Environmental Protection, which is different from the environmental agency, there's lots of different regulators. But so the Office for Environmental Protection is only for England and Northern Ireland because Scotland created its own um, Environmental Standards Scotland and Wales is going to create its Commission for the Environment at one point. I mean, they, they said they would. Uh, it's going to. It's still taking them a bit of time because you know COVID and things like that. Yeah. Um. So and actually, the Scottish body is a bit more independent, has a bit more power than the English and Northern Irish body. Um, Northern Ireland. I mean, all of these discussions, of course, were happening. A lot of them, while we didn't have you know a functioning executive, a functioning assembly which made it extremely difficult for the Northern Irish Civil Service uh, to kind of, you know, make decisions around, uh, you know, how we should fill that North, like, that governance gap. And so the risk really was for like these three years where we didn't have an assembly that, you know, that these problems would get addressed for all of the UK except for Northern Ireland, which is super problematic because Northern Ireland is where the environment is at the weakest in the UK in many ways. So that, the way that, it was done, it was basically, it was kind of a, an option uh, in the Environmental Act, the UK Environmental Act for Northern Ireland to opt in. And when a government came back, they could you know, activate that option and with you know, the assembly kind of voting for it. So that's why we're the only devolved that is kind of that has opted in the English body. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of effort made uh, by the team setting up the Office for Environmental Protection to make sure it's not just an English body also in Northern Ireland, but it is really also, you know, with people with lots of Northern Irish expertise and lots of, you know, they do a lot of visiting here so that it does look like there's local buy-in as well. Okay, that's really interesting because I suppose the problem with Northern Ireland then was one of the things I wanted to discuss is that Northern Ireland, like you said, is at its weakest and possibly most vulnerable because it is the only part of the UK that doesn't have its own specific climate legislation. So there is already a big policy gap there. and I'm, I'm just sort of wondering, with the absence of any EU policy, what, what happens to Northern Ireland? And obviously in the ab- absence of any specific legislation, I know that there's two bills currently being discussed, but when and whether 
or which one's going to come into place is sort of very much up in the air at the minute. So I just wonder, what does that mean for Northern Ireland specifically? I mean, I think so. I think overall, yes. I mean, you know, with as a post-conflict society, often the environment has ended up being quite low on priority. I think that that is changing quite rapidly. You know, I mean, climate strikes in Belfast show that, you know, there's clearly an appetite uh, for environmental action. Um, Now, we are in a situation where you had both you know, regulatory gaps and governance gaps that predate Brexit in Northern Ireland. We are also the only part of the UK without an independent environmental agency, um, which you know raises specific problems, and I don't think we're going to go into that. Um, but what we have as well is also we also the only part of the UK that through the Northern Ireland Protocol is actually keeping aligned with part of EU law on the environment, whereas the other the rest of the UK isn't. So in many ways, we're the part of the UK because of the protocol that is the least likely to be able to trash its environmental record uh, and regulation uh, because we are still bound uh, by some key pieces of environmental legislation through the EU. Um, and we're actually halfway in the European um, trading scheme for uh, for climate, you know, for carbon as well, sort of like the electricity sector is. So even on the climate, we're in some ways as well, kind of half-linked to the UK system, half-linked to the EU. Um, so I think, you know, we are, now that we have as well, kind of homegrown ambition and action on climate, I think we are actually in a really strong position to catch up on quite a lot of what we, and I mean, we have a lot to catch up on, but we are in a pretty good place right now, hopefully. I won't yeah. regret saying that in a few months. But. <laughs> No, I think I think that is probably quite fair to say because I think, you know, that there does seem to be steps in the right direction. I mean, two bills is better than zero bills, which was the reality a couple of years ago. So I think, yeah, it's probably fair to say that it is going in the right direction. Um, I wonder as well, because I think one of the things that I'd heard a lot around sort of 2019 was concerns that actually Brexit would lead to a levelling down of policy and ambitions and, and governance on environmental matters um, and, and things like food standards, you know, talks about potential deals with the US and animal rights going out the window. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And and if that is, if is that a valid concern or is that a bit of scaremongering? No, it is. It is a very valid concern. Um, so in many ways, um, so I guess there's two ways of looking at it. That where where you could see this as a bit too much of scaremongering is that actually, if you look at when the UK was in the EU, the UK was really one of the key states pushing for animal welfare. Um, and this is, um, I mean, if you look at surveys and what environmental issues matter to to public to the public across different countries, uh, surprisingly, not surprisingly, perhaps water quality doesn't matter so much in the UK. Uh, animal welfare really does. Uh, in France, it's kind of the opposite. So, um, you know, I mean, every country will kind of think about key environmental issues differently. And so the great British public is perhaps the least likely to be willing to let go of some of these kind of animal welfare standards. And if, you know, so, I mean, and really the chlorinated chicken discussion is not just about you know it's not just about the product you put on washing chicken meat it's really the fact that so many chicken end up being sick uh through the, the way you uh raise them 
that is actually an animal welfare issue. So if you present this as an animal welfare issue in terms of the type of farming you want to see or not end up on your plate, then I think there could be a lot of popular opposition to it. Now, that, that's the case if it's a very kind of frontal move by the government to make it like, oh, yeah, we are going to shred our animal welfare standards. That's very unlikely to happen. What's more likely is for things such as um, keeping uh, UK farmers to a certain level, but actually accepting imports at a, at a lower standard. And what we're seeing through um, the Internal Market Act um, that has been set up um, and that, you know, that was that piece of legislation. We heard it a lot about it a lot in Northern Ireland because that's where the UK government was threatening to kind of uh, oppose, you know, go against international law in a very specific way. But it was also actually, and perhaps more worryingly, because that's still in the act, uh, really threatening and undermining devolution. Um, so what you have is that basically uh, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland a bit less because of the protocol, but Scotland and Wales, basically, if they end up being more ambitious than um, England on environmental issues, such as, you know, batting more uh, single-use plastics or more quickly or these kind of things, they will only be able to impose these rules on producers in their own country. You could still have someone uh, from England producing to English standard, having complete access to the Welsh or Scottish market. You could also have someone that has, you know, from the US, Argentina, Australia, whatever, that has, you know, if there's a trade deal with the UK and it can, it has been accepted by the UK government as being able to enter the UK, then Wales and Scotland won't be able to prevent that product from entering their own market. Um, so that's a specific concern on GM, for example, where um, all the devolved administration were much more opposed to GMOs than England and the UK government have been. Um, you know, so there's going to be a lot of, I think a lot of these issues are not going to be, I mean, the government knows that these are actually pretty unpopular. So if there's going to be movement, they're not going to be the most kind of blatant, like public announcement yeah. we're shredding these rules. Uh, but it's actually on these issues where you see, and something that you don't often see is actually the farming unions and the environmental movement standing together, demanding that standards are upheld, and that we are not at the same time asking our farmers to improve, you know, how they farm because we are still, you know, farming still has a negative impact on the environment in many areas. So we need to change a lot about British farming, but British farming still meets much higher standards than a lot of its competitors. So it is completely unfair to ask farmers to do much more, which they should do, while at the same time undermining them and undercutting them through trade with partners that do not meet these same standards. Yeah, because that was actually one of the things that came to mind when you were just talking then, because obviously agriculture has become a, a, a key sort of point of contention when we're talking climate legislation in Northern Ireland. But actually, like you just said, Northern Ireland farming and UK farming generally is done to much higher standards than other parts of the world. So I guess that in a way there should, well, you'd expect to see a desire to protect the farming industry in the UK. I mean, I think it's it's important to, but yes, so I think it is a very complex thing, right? Because a lot of the farming we do in Northern Ireland, um, but also in Wales, is not for local uh, yeah. product, you know, it's not for the local market. It's a lot of exporting. And it's also putting a lot of like 
really a lot of pressure. If you look at ammonia emissions in Northern Ireland, for example, it's putting a lot of pressure on the on the local environment. I'm from Brittany, a region in France that has similar problems, where we have a huge production, um, you know, of of pigs and poultry, and you know, really bad water quality linked to that. So this is not a Northern Irish specific problem, but it is really something that we need to grapple with in terms of how do we make sure that we, you know, farming keep, like remains profitable, that it is a job that young people want to do, that we have jobs in rural areas, that we have all of this, while at the same time recognizing that even that even now, farming in general tends to still have a negative impact on the environment, even if farmers are doing a lot of very positive things. Um, so, you know, it, it is, the, and that is the difficult thing, is, is how you manage to put together a policy that supports farmers to, like in the right going in the right direction um but i think the key thing is that you can't expect that much a farmer while also undercutting them and making it harder for them to sell on their at least their home market but even also abroad no that's really interesting i suppose you've raised like a really like a number of good points because yeah if we are producing a lot to export then we probably need to reconsider some of our agriculture modules models but no that's really interesting i wondered um since Brexit then, if there have been any notable changes? So has there been, apart from obviously this recent climate bill that's just come in, were there any notable changes to policy or um, sort of the standards in terms of environmental issues in the UK? Um, so it depends how you define Brexit. So if you think like since the referendum and since the actual kind of Brexit day, right, because, um, you know, the UK uh, Parliament and then uh, quite a few of the people as well, you know, voting for like declaring a climate emergency that happened after the referendum, right? That was actually quite shortly after the referendum. Um, and that showed that, you know, on, on like ambition was not going to go out the window directly. Um, there's some more negative movement right now. Um, you know, all of this discussion, especially in England, around what water companies get up to. And and the fact that there is still so much sewage, like untreated sewage, uh, going into um, yeah in, into rivers, um, you have quite a bit of movement as well on plastics. That is, you know, has been you know moving away from single use plastics. Um, perhaps one that I find is quite interesting as well is the movement around you know more chemicals in general, and we've got. Uh, ideas around lead shot and, and hunting and the impact it actually can have on the environment. And that actually Northern Ireland and Scotland were actually, so the EU banned it, but Northern Ireland and Scotland already had partial bans right now. And now England is moving towards it. So it kind of shows similar on plastics that it's, if you care about the environment, you need to look at what Brussels is doing, what London is doing, but definitely don't discount the devolve. In some areas, Wales is doing brilliantly. Scotland is doing brilliantly. Even Northern Ireland sometimes is more advanced uh, than others and we need to really rethink our kind of London-centric view mm-hmm. of politics there um, and so that's where you know I'd see you know we had a, a new climate act uh, in Scotland uh, citizen assembly um, similarly here we're getting very exciting things so it it is actually I mean a lot of the work and that's I guess that's why you asked the question it looks like there hasn't been much happening but actually a lot of the work has been in kind of making sure terrible things do not happen. And, okay. you know, and now that we've kind of made sure that these gaps are not going to be widened, uh, the kind of 
blocked the, these big regulatory and governing gaps. Now you can start building again and pushing for more ambition. But for the last five years, perhaps the environmental movement in many ways had to kind of fight to keep hold of you know, the standards and the process that we had acquired through EU membership. So now, you know, the bill is like the act is not perfect, far from it, but it's still kind of, okay, we are all relieved and now we get back to work and we push for more. So the absence of extreme developments and commitments isn't necessarily a bad thing in this context, because actually what's been happening is if we've been trying to maintain a certain standard that was already there. Is that is that fair to say? Okay, that's really interesting. Also, I think what I'm getting from this is that actually this could be a really unique and good opportunity for Northern Ireland to craft some legislation that really meets its needs. And, and, you know, the opportunity is there. Completely. Um, I think, I mean, Northern Ireland, so there are actually not that many areas of the environment that are covered by the protocol so that we actually have quite a bit of freedom in terms of doing things our own way. Now, you're seeing um, a lot of really interesting development uh, across the UK uh, through the fact that, you know, devolution means that people are doing the things their own way. So it also means that, I mean, Northern Ireland is a small administration. We're not going to be able to become expert at every single environmental issue, but you can perhaps work with the Welsh uh, on, one, on one way of doing it, with English on other and Scottish on others. There's also, of course, the Shared Ireland Initiative happening um, and so efforts north-south, I mean, the environment Environment is one of the six areas of cooperation mm-hmm. under the Good Friday Agreement. So you have also opportunities to kind of tackle the kind of the, the shared environmental challenges as well in north-south and east-west basis. So even though, you know, we're a small part of the world, uh, we've got really a lot of opportunities to work with others, to learn from others, but also really that tailor these policies and solutions to our own problem and our own priorities. Which is actually a really amazing opportunity, I think, for yep. Northern Ireland. Um, just before I let you go, you mentioned earlier that there's been the publication of an environmental strategy in Northern yes. Ireland. Um, and that obviously there's a consultation out there that people can sort of take part in. Can you just give us like a quick rundown of like any highlights or any key points from that? Have I put you on the spot? Have I put you on the spot there? No, 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 no. That's fine. Um, so I can I can tell you why it matters, right? Um, yeah. So, and the Environmental Act that has been just passed um, for England, it has this twenty five year environment plan that is basically the plan that all UK government acting for England on the environment are going to have to deliver for the next twenty years now on kind of meeting environmental standards, and that's. Um, and Northern Ireland is going to have its own strategy, the equivalent of this. Um, so it tells you kind of what for the government is the key area where we should be do- acting on the environment, you know, on climate, on air pollution, on water pollution, on ammonia and all of this. What's the level of ambition we should have and how we should get there. So for me, Working on governance, I find that really interesting that there is actually a lot of commitment in this strategy on working both east-west and north-south on tackling these shared problems across border because the environment doesn't really respect borders as well. Um, But I think, you know, for students that are really interested in following these two climate bills, kind of uh, interesting uh, debate right now. Uh, around net zero uh, for the UK or net zero as well for Northern Ireland and what it would mean. You know, that's also your opportunity to tell um, DIRA and t- tell the department 
are you happy with the level of ambition that they're planning for on climate but and also on all of these environmental issues because i'm not really a climate person i'm more of a so many people are working on climate all the rest of the environment also matters people so for me i'd be also really interested in looking at you know the good balancing across all the different um, objectives that are mentioned there it's not just about climate it's also about biodiversity loss it's also about pollution yeah and I, I think that's a really valid point and I think that's something that sometimes gets lost especially in mainstream media coverage that you know it's more than just emissions and it's more than just climate we also need to think about loss of biodiversity and you know all these other things that go into it so I think that's a really valid point and I think our listeners should definitely if they get a chance go on to and give their feedback to the government to just make sure that we get the best policy policy outcome we possibly can for Northern Ireland. And you'll also make some civil servants really happy when they hear from normal <laughs> people uh, and not just academics or the environmental sector ex- you know, expressing their views on the environment. So I think in general, we, you know, this is an exciting time to be rethinking how we deal yeah. with the environment in Northern Ireland and everyone should get involved. No, definitely. Because I think it's exactly what you said. It's an exciting time. So instead of thinking about the absence of climate legislation, let's just think about the opportunity we have to kind of help shape a really decent policy outcome for Northern Ireland. Definitely. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And I'm so glad we finally managed to get you on the show. Um, I hope you've enjoyed speaking to us as well. It was a pleasure. And um, yeah, I'm sorry it took so long. But yeah, Brexit keeps on happening. Brexit will continue to happen, I'm sure, for a very, very long time. Definitely. No, thank you very much. Now, I couldn't leave you without the usual good news segment. And the good news segment this week is slightly different to what you're used to uh, in that I'm going solo. There's no email with us this week, which is very sad. But fear not, I'm going to do my best on my own. So like I said earlier on, I really wanted to do a good news segment that sort of did a look back to 2021 and sort of looked at some of the positive outcomes from 2021. So without further ado, let's get started. So the first thing in 2021, which happened was in January, the US rejoined the Paris Agreement. And President Biden actively reversed a decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, which was, you know, one of Trump's most questionable choices. And doing so, he brought one of the world's leading emitters actively back into the international conversation. And that's a really important thing because it sort of reversed a decision which internationally in the discussions of climate change had left people feeling a little bit hopeless. So that's a really good outcome. And while we're on politics, I'm going to talk about COP26, which, okay, I know it wasn't the success that everyone had hoped for. I know we all had super high hopes for it, and in some ways it was very disappointing. But I do think that it made some progress, and I do think that there are parts of it which are worth celebrating. One of the biggest ones for me, I think, was the formal inclusion of the role of fossil fuels in the Glasgow Agreement, and the sort of watered-down wording about phasing them out. Again, I don't think that this was as strong as everyone had hoped for and what we wanted But I do think it's really important to recognise that for the first time in the history of COPs, fossil fuels made their way into an agreement, which means that the international community for the first time, formally and on paper, pointed the finger at the industry that we all know is most at fault for climate change. So I think that's something that's really worth celebrating. 
And actually, while we're on the topic of fossil fuels, during 2021, there were actually a number of nations which have taken steps to absolutely ditch the dirtiest fossil fuel there is, coal. And these countries were Portugal, Austria, Sweden and Belgium. They are all now called post-coal countries. And again, building into the Glasgow Agreement, it's another sign that we're slowly starting to see the end of fossil fuels. They really are becoming a dirty word, which is what we want to see. Now, a little bit closer to home, 2021 actually saw the UK reporting that beach litter had hit a 20-year low. 20-year low. And this was partly due to some bans in some plastics in the UK, but also due to a load of initiatives um, supporting beach cleans all across the UK. So it's definitely something to celebrate. It means that policy is having a positive impact and we're starting to see the benefits of that. But there is still a lot of work to be done. So let's not be complacent and let's not start littering, guys. And that's not the only bit of good news to come from the UK. One of my other really favourite ones was that Tidal Energy has actually got a fresh new wave see what I did there, of funding in the UK in 2021. So the UK actually committed to investing about 20 million annually in the marine energy sector. And importantly, this investment is going to do a number of things. It's going to help an existing small industry scale up, which is going to diversify the number of energy sources in the UK, bolstering the renewable energy sources, which is amazing. It's also going to create a lot of green new jobs, which is another excellent byproduct of this decision. So there are also some really good things coming from the UK that we need to be positive about. And finally, and I really like this one, um, scientists are actually looking into how you can turn popcorn into an eco-friendly form of home insulation. Yep, that's right, your house could in the future be insulated with popcorn. And as it turns out, Home insulations actually made using fossil fuels quite a lot of the time, which I didn't really know about. So that was something new that I've learned. And while looking for alternatives to this, scientists in Germany think they have found a way of turning popcorn into insulation boards. And not only will these boards provide excellent insulation, they will also have the added benefit of protecting against fire. So who knew? Popcorn's so versatile. Tasty cinema snack turned insulation. I think it's another good example of how technology is also moving in the right direction and how, you know, every year there's lots of new alternatives to otherwise polluting solutions. So another really good thing to be positive about. So yeah, as you can see, there is a lot to celebrate and be happy about, but there is obviously still a lot to be done, which can really sometimes be overwhelming if you just focus on how much there is left to be done. So I think it's really important to sometimes just take the time and celebrate some of the wins. And I hope that this good news segment has done that for you. Well, that's all we actually have time for this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And I just want to give a shout out to Robin Maddox, who is usually responsible for bringing this episode to you because without her editing skills, it just would not happen. So thank you to all for listening. Thank you to Robin for editing the episode and I hope you join us next time.